Welcome to the Explore Words Discover World podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we uncover the fascinating life of Charlotte Bronte and her travels abroad. From her extended stays at the Heger School in Brussels to her little-known honeymoon in Wales and Ireland, Charlotte's experiences offer a wealth of information to explore. Join authors Pauline Clooney, Monica Kendall and Michael O'Dowd as they discuss Charlotte's attitudes and experiences of travel, drawing on her letters, historical records and the previously unappreciated perspective of the Jenkins family. Recorded live at the 2022 Bradford Literature Festival, this episode provides a unique insight into the life of one of literature's most beloved figures. Hi everyone, thanks so much for coming. Um, yeah, this is my third event chairing uh, at Bronte Day. I started off with um, my quite rambling talk this morning on Bronte's for Beginners, um, and then we were looking at the tenant of Wildfell Hall as depicted on table napkins, which I never thought would be a thing. Um, for me, this event is particularly exciting. Um, it's with titled No Net Ensnares Me, a Charlotte Bronte quote, um, Charlotte Bronte abroad because we've got three authors here who have undertaken massive amounts of research and produced three very different books on elements of um, Charlotte Bronte and some of the other figures in the Bronte world, uh, well not least Emily Bronte uh, and their time abroad. Um, so I'm going to let them introduce their books uh, but first of all just to give you a quick gist of who's who. So we've got Pauline Clooney um, who is our novelist. We've got Monica Kendall who was our I, want, I almost wanted to say it's a, well, it's, it's a very big book. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very big. Hopefully she won't be casting it across the room. It's, um, it's actually, a, in, a, in a sense, a work of family history that gives us many new lenses on aspects of the Brontes' lives. Um, and Michael O'Dowd, who has written really a travel log, which actually goes beautifully tiny, with tiny. Pauline's <laughs> book, Anna, because they're covering the same journey, which is Charlotte Bronte and Arthur Nichols' honeymoon um so um but i want to start off by asking each of them first um really um so what were your the roots of your interest in the bronte and i'll start with with you pauline okay thank you um so it probably started with in 1979 i came to um brick house with my grandmother visiting um relatives and they brought us to howarth and my grandmother bought me a copy of Wuthering Heights, um, which I think I did read that year. It gets confused with Kate Bush's song. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think I read it. Um, but then it was, it was later as um, a teacher then um, that I read Jane Eyre and just got fascinated with Charlotte and kind of couldn't let her go um, and did a master's on her um, as well, which was a lot of the master's was demythologizing Gaskell's a life um, based on the letters and, and that of Charlotte. Um, so, yeah, I, I couldn't let it go. And the one aspect of her life that kept kind of appearing to me as something that needed to be addressed was her honeymoon. Um, that it always just got a line in a biography or a paragraph. It was never dealt with that much. So that's that. That was my challenge. Thank you. Which is beautifully fulfilled, by the way. I absolutely 
love this novel, but we'll talk about that a bit later. So, Monica, the Brontes for you. It's a, it's a family thing. It's a family thing, and um, I wasn't interested in them at all. <laughs> <laughs> so that's refreshing, maybe, for today. Um, I read loads of novels as I was growing up, and all Thomas Hardy, George Eliot. I love Victorian novels, Trollope, Thackeray. But the Brontes... I think it was because I was made to read Jane Eyre at school. If you're made to read something, you think, oh, no, so I don't want to do any more of that. It was, so it was only nine years ago exactly. Um, I met an editor for 40 years. And uh, Paul Grace Macmillan, I got, uh, there was a chapter in one book about Villette, Charlotte's um, novel set in Brussels. And I thought, oh, that's interesting, because my family were in Brussels for, um, since, from 1820 to 1890, there were clergymen in Brussels. I thought, oh, I must read that. I hadn't really heard of it. And no one has actually mentioned Violette today at all. Mm. And it's her best novel, so there. <laughs> um, and at the same time, my cousin, who's a, um, has, her daughter's a conceptual artist, and she just emailed and said, her daughter's going to Brussels. Where, was, where did the Jenkinses live? And so I, I said, well, it's Rue Saint-Bernard in 1860s onwards. And then she emailed back excitedly saying, I've just discovered the most amazing thing via Google. Um, she'd Googled Brontes, I don't know why, Brontes Jenkins Brussels, and she'd come across this article um, by a chap in the Brussels Bronte group site that said um, oh, he discovered where the Jenkins home was, where the Bronte sisters have visited many times. And I was just, what? Because I had uh, written about my Jenkins family in Brussels all that time for a New York um, school magazine. This is complicated, but... Um, and I'd said in it that, oh, well, the, the Bronte sisters were there and Charlotte fell in love and, um, and my, you know, all these things happened in Brussels at that time. And I never connected the two. And it was on the internet and no one said, but haven't you read Mrs. Gaskell's life? Your family knew the Bronte sisters. They put Brad Patrick Bronte up for the night in Brussels. And it was just, and that's how I started. So I read Villette and I thought, wow, this is an amazing novel. Read all the rest of it and then started reading. Obviously read Mrs. Gaskell and thought, you know, she mentioned she met my great-great-grandmother in Brussels. She interviewed her. Um, and so then I started reading the other biographies. And that's when the trouble started. And I discovered, oh, fabrication <laughs> after fabrication about my family, the Jenkins. No one had researched them. So, so pause that thought and we'll get to pause more of those thought. lies. Those lies. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, but... Let's hear how, uh, Michael, so what was your beginning with the Brontes? Well, the, the true story is my mother read Jane Eyre to me when I was in the womb. Beat that. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the true story is I went to college in Galway, which is on the western seaboard of Ireland, and the main square there is called Eyre Square. And in the local church... There is a large funerary monument to Jane Eyre. Now, the tourists who come to visit know that that is where Jane Eyre was actually interred. 
and they wonder, but where is Mr. Rochester? <laughs> anyway, anyway, Jane Eyre, not Jane Eyre, Charlotte. Charlotte and Arthur had a very nice part of their honeymoon in a place called Banagher in the west of Ireland or central west. Our daughter, Katie, went to secondary school there for five years. So I was very conversant with Banagher and the local history and the local culture. So from that time on, I had a great interest in Charlotte Bronte, more than the rest of the Brontes. Mm. Okay. So very diverse paths to the Brontes, it's fair to say. And I should add that, Michael, um, I mean, you might be the first gynaecologist to have written on the Brontes. I don't, I don't know. Would that be fair to... <laughs> uh, I'm not the first gynaecologist to make any kind of a reference to it because we might talk about it later, but... There is an opinion that Charlotte may have been pregnant when she unfortunately made her way to heaven. We could talk about that later. So a number of gynecologist obstetricians made remarks that, oh, this is vomiting of pregnancy. This is created by a hydatidiform mole. This is this, this is that. All opinions, by the way. And of course, back then there were no pregnancy tests. That didn't come in until 1927. And there was no ultrasound scan. Also, medics did not examine intimate areas of ladies at that time. Would look in their eyes, listen to their story, take a sample of urine, put it up to the sky and pronounce, oh, you could be. <laughs> so they took the lady's story for it. So we, okay, right, good. Love how you've totally linked that. To, so, because I thought it was just taken as that she was definitely pregnant, and that's why I'm she. I'm sure had. she was absolutely. Yeah, she, she says. I think a, she thought she was. She says, in, yeah, she says that in a letter to yeah. Ellen that she, yeah. when she's feeling very sick, and she said, "Don't speculate. It's too soon yeah. to speculate." But I think she thought she she was herself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 May I? May I oh, come well. in on that? <laughs> so, at the time that she thought. She may have been, she complained of a looseness or funny feeling in her tummy. It wasn't the first time ever, if you read her letters, she has complained of that previously many times. And also, if you roll that back to the time when she may have had her last menstrual cycle, bring it forward to the time she died, she would have been about 18 weeks pregnant. As she herself said in her letters, she was emaciated. An 18-week pregnancy at that stage in an emaciated woman would reach more than halfway up to her tummy button and be very visible. She would know it. And the ladies who laid it out and washed her before she was interned would have seen it. Interred would have seen it. Nothing was ever seen or noted. So there is an opinion that she may have been pregnant, but nobody can prove that she was or that she wasn't. Ooh, and Although I do see in... Allworth, it says that she was pregnant, but they should have, could have been, would be more correct. Yeah. yeah. And here we are in this fascinating area of kind of truth and lies and what's possible to know and what's possible not to know about the Brontes. And then the feelings about it. And I'm kind of feeling a, yeah. ooh, a sad yeah. feeling. More recently, moment. authors have said, oh, she had a urinary tract infection in pregnancy. That's why she was vomiting. There are multiple reasons why you can vomit. Also, we know that she had thysis or TB, and that tends to make you infertile. Oh, did she? 
Yeah, well, uh, it's on our death I'm certificate. Not sure about that. It's on our death certificate. No. Oh, by the way, on our death certificate. By the way, on her death certificate, <laughs> Arthur does not appear there as her husband. It's somebody called Abraham. Oh, well, there. Put of, that in your pipe and smoke it. Just a registrar who does a bit too much to drink, yeah, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's hear a little bit, just to kind of give us a brief, I almost want to now say a brief elevator pitch. Um, but I, I want everyone to be able to see your books and know what they're called and just know what they're about. So if you could kind of, you've introduced yourselves brilliantly. Could you introduce um, your, your, your book? Starting with you. Okay, <laughs> so, well, it's very simply called Charlotte and Arthur, and it is the story of their marriage and the honeymoon. Um, Charlotte to Arthur Bell Nichols, um, who was her father's curate. Do you, do you want me to give a synopsis of the No. Um, so it, it's the story of the honeymoon. So, um, and, and the honeymoon then was she went from, from Howarth, they went down, spent some time in, in Wales, and then took the steam packet over to Ireland and they travelled a little bit like kind of the Irish version of the Grand Tour um, at the time. And, and Ireland was very popular then because Queen Victoria had been there um, and that made it a popular destination for Victorians and Victorian honeymooners. So they came to Ireland. But but one of the, the main reasons was, of course, um, Michael mentioned it earlier, that um, Arthur was had been brought up in Banagher. He wasn't born in Banagher, he was from Northern Ireland, just like um, the Reverend Bronte was as well. But he was brought up from the age of seven by um, an aunt and uncle in Banagher. So it was to go there, meet her relatives, um, her in-laws, and they stayed there for uh, a week. And then they travelled on to Kilkee um, in County Clare, the west of Ireland. And that was the most famous watering place, as it was called at the time, we'd call them seaside um, resort today. Um, and then down through Cork and Kerry and back to Dublin. So they spent the entire month of July um, in 1854 travelling around Ireland. And it was my, it's my belief, based on the extant letters that we have from that time, that while she may have been a reluctant bride on the 29th of June, um, I believe that she did end up falling in love with Arthur. And she says enough afterwards in letters as well, particularly when she's unwell, to indicate that he was, as she called him, my dear boy. Mm. Yeah. And actually, mm. you do kind of show this unfolding. I, I saw, so connected with it, how a relationship can go from, oh, not really sure, to, oh, gradually, in the little gestures, the little movements towards love. I believed mm. it fully. Mm. Um, Monica has differing views on Arthur, yeah. which means we have a we have a special section in a bit that I'm going to have to referee. <laughs> not yet about Arthur, um, but we're not we're not there yet. No. Monica, just tell us a bit about. Okay, so did, where I got to was suddenly um, starting to read, read Mrs. Gaskell's life, and discovered you know she'd gone to Brussels to speak to Eliza and of course to speak to um, uh, Constantin Heger. Um, the man, you know, the teacher, whom Charlotte had fallen in love with. Um, and so she quoted her, so I thought, oh, great, I'll read the other biographies, because everyone must, must have, since 1857, researched my family. No. No one researched the Jenkins family at all, even though Charlotte had known them for two years in Brussels. 
Emily had known them without speaking a word, obviously, <laughs> for nine months. And also um, um, my great-great-grandfather's eldest, elder brother, David, was here in Yorkshire. He was given his first job um, as a clergyman by Patrick Bronte, which no one has realised before. But it's obviously, it's obviously there. I went to Borswick to look at the ordin ordination papers. Oh, ordination bundles are wonderful. If you've got, um, you've got people, ancestors, who are clergymen in the Church of England, just go and look for the ordination bundles and you'll find testimonies and letters and it's just great. Um, so I discovered that not only had no one researched them at all, but they fabricated. And you can't put fabrications on a spine, so it was lies. Um, <laughs> the worst culprit was Winifred uh, Gerard, um, who brought out her book on Charlotte in the 1960s and won awards for it. And she just made stuff up, saying that... Um, there's an escorting story, and that alerted me. I was asked, well, how did you know? How do you know they're fabrications? Um, yeah, it's an escorting story that says um, the, the sons of Evan and Eliza Jenkins escorted uh, Charlotte and Emily um, from the pensionnat to church, etc. Um, and they were called um, John and Edward in that order. And I thought, well... My great-grandfather was John. He didn't do any escorting. He was seven. And he was the fourth son in the family. So immediately I thought, oh, this is... Why is she making it up? And so the more I looked, the more I thought, Winifred Jenner is just making stuff up. And actually, for you, because mm. I mean, what strikes me is you're an amazing researcher. That book is an amazing work of dedicated, mm. uh, kind of really minutiae of what happened and when, and you've kind of really, really stuck to that um, at a deep level. And it feels like, as well as it being your your family, because I have to say, to, I suppose it feels like the lies are not huge lies, but it's as if Winifred and Gerard didn't quite care enough to get it right, and you care deeply yeah. about the rightness, don't you, of yeah. the historic I record. I absolutely cared. If someone's making up stuff about your family, no one else would have particularly care. But um, she made up dialogue. She made up that my great-great-grandmother, Eliza, had talked to this other biographer called Mrs Chadwick and, and made, had this little conversation about, oh, well, we had to, you know, say that the girls didn't have to come, you know. Um, could you, you just, how dare you make up conversations, especially as Mrs Chadwick was two years old when my great-great-grandmother died. So, I mean... Just do the research. And I hated that. I hated mm. that. How dare you? And the other thing was, see, I got really <laughs> upset about this. That's I, it's a very big book. It's a very big book, yes. Yeah. But I got upset about a lot of things. Um, that, that saying, oh, yeah, even the marvellous Margaret Smith, who edited Charlotte's letters, she said, oh, well, this, this, this clergyman who Charlotte Bronte is calling a little Welsh pony was my great-great-grandfather. No, that was his nephew, Joseph. She'd known him for 18 months. You know, I'm going to defend my family, you know, yeah, with yeah. 622 pages, yeah, yeah. because it was just, you know, it's... Yeah, of course, no-one else bothered. And I don't know why, but they didn't bother. And actually, and actually what you're showing, I think, in the book is how often biographers will sort of 
skip over the bits they're not that interested in and think, oh, well, strict accuracy. We'll just cover that timeline. And actually, perhaps strict accuracy really does matter. Thank you, Monica. We'll Thank hear you. More. Um, Michael, yeah, tell us a bit about your, your book. So before I give you a little bit of background... Just to say thank you to the two authors who have done amazing research and produced gorgeous books. And I'm minded to think of John's Gospel. The truth will set you free. Mm. And the truth can set you free. Not to have these layers of onions added on that are untrue, which happens so frequently. Anyway, going back to... <laughs> the Irish, the Charlotte Bronte... I call it an Irish odyssey, but of course it deals with Charlotte and Arthur leaving home and being in Wales as well. But the reason why I call the title As We Are, repeated Mr. Rochester, so he added, enclosing me in his arms, gathering me to his breast, pressing his lips on mine. Beautiful dog. Yes, so, sir, I rejoined. Let me go, let me go. Where, Jane? To Ireland? Yes, to Ireland. I am a bird. No net ensnares me. So, Rochester gave me the idea of calling it the Irish Odyssey. And, of course, this is a book of non-fiction. Pauline has done a magical fiction book, but this is non-fiction. So, when you look at the writings from the era... Charlotte did not write very much on her honeymoon, nor did Arthur, nor did anybody else, okay. So what I needed to do was to try and think about the sights, the sounds, the treasures that she met on honeymoon, which was a joyous occasion. So what did I do? I went to her friends, her literary friends, and other travelogues of that exact time, and I took from there the pictures, the sounds, the sights, the treasures, and I added them in, plus a little bit of local culture, a little bit of poetry, to try and give you an all-embracing feel of what it could have been for Charlotte, and also little segments from her novels to flick them into space and give you a kind of composite whole, hey, this was a honeymoon to remember, and as she said, our honeymoon will live our lifelong. Hmm. And yet, so tragically, that lifelong was only a few short months, wasn't it? Um, which um, takes us on to, <laughs> I slightly regret having, but I, uh, okay, this is the title of, of my next question. So it's not even a question, really, it's the title. Um, because when, when we sort of emailed before the event to prepare, it became clear there were differing views. <laughs> <laughs> on Charlotte Bronte's husband, <laughs> Arthur. Um, I'm not sure I'm going to be an impartial referee because I've been completely swayed by Pauline's um, novel and I've always felt it anyway and I was just always glad that Charlotte seemed to be happy, just happy for a bit, just a short moment of happiness. Didn't she deserve that? Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, right, so, but this is the title we've, we've gone for of this section. Um, Arthur, hero or driveller? Um, at some point, Patrick Bronte had suggested he was a driveller. Monica wanted to call this section Arthur, hero or monster. I was like, no, no. But we'll see. So, <laughs> Pauline, the case for poor Arthur. 
I know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and kind of first, you know, Michael and I discovered that we were both researching and writing our yeah. books at the same time. Oh, yeah. um, and a lot of the material that he would have uh, researched, I was. So it would have been really helpful if he had done his book before me. <laughs> <laughs> and I could just have access to an Irish Odyssey. It would have saved me months, years of research. Um, but yeah, the case for Arthur, like, uh, for, well, I mean, apart from the reference to my dear boy, there's countless references, um, you know, that, that Charlotte makes. She talks about, you know, the dearest husband, having him is better than fame and wealth and something else, which I, I forget. But there's also the case of Arthur himself, you know, and, and his life story that, um, like, when she died in 1855, he stayed with... Pa- with the reverend until he died and he stayed to mind him to nurse him to do his mm. duties um and um he, he and and this was you know the the man that had previously called him a driveler but but that had all ended because charlotte says in her letters after the honeymoon that she there hasn't been a crossword between them she cannot believe how well they are getting on and i think that's down to the generosity and spirit of arthur bell nichols and he stayed there until 1861 he didn't get the curacy which he thought he was going to get and um, he didn't get it so he came back to ireland to banagher and lived out the rest of his long days he didn't die until 1905 um, in, in Banahar as a small farmer. He left the clergy um, at that point. But we also have, um, he very much kept up the contact with the parsonage. And um, There's um, a small book called Dear Martha, and it's his letters to Martha Brown. Um, and she would have. She was the servant in the parsonage, so she came over to Ireland quite a bit and and you know, holidayed with the um, with Arthur and his new wife um, in um, in in Banagher. But those letters show the man for who he is as well. And he's he's just the kindest man. And he's and, and I know what Monica is going to say. She's going to she's going she's going to she's going to hone in on the idea that that, that Arthur said to um, Charlotte at one stage. He looked over her shoulder as she was writing to Ellen and said, you know, I really don't think you know you should be saying those things. I think I'm gonna to have to censor those letters um, unless Ellen agrees that she will burn them from now on. And when you read, that, when you know Charlotte, first of all, and Charlotte is not a shrinking violet, and when you know Charlotte and you read into the letters, herself and Ellen had quite a bit of fun around Mm -hmm. that. Um, And, you know, and she says, and I love this part in the letter, she says at one stage um, that the reason, you know, she now realises why men's letters are so dull. And it's (laughs) it's because they're afraid to say anything that's going to be used against them in the future. Mm. Because that's what Arthur said. He said, you don't know what, you know, whose hands these letters are going to get into. But in one of those letters, she says um, that, you know, if men, if anything of kind of sentimental value ever slipped into their... Um, their letters, it would be accompanied, and I love this because it's like a, a modern emoji, it would be accompanied by hands over a shy face. <laughs> and she says that, you know, so so yeah. that's what I think. I, and I, I think that to, to hone in on that aspect and I'll allow that to kind of uh, define the man is erroneous. Mm-hmm. Lies. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, Monica. Arthur, why? I'm afraid it's um, patriarchy rearing its nasty head, and we're all used to it in the Victorian age, but it's coercive control that starts happening when, they get, when she gets back from the honeymoon. Um, honeymoon, fine. 
but then she gets back and I'll, I'll read that bit out. Arthur has been glancing over this note. So he's come up to see what she's writing. Um, he thinks I've written too freely about Amelia, etc. Men don't seem to understand making letters a vehicle of communication. They always seem to think it us incautious, in, women incautious. I'm sure I don't think I have said anything rash. However, you must burn it when read. Arthur says such letters as mine never ought to be kept. They are dangerous as Lucifer matches. So be sure to follow a recommendation he has just given. Fire them or there will be no more. So Arthur will actually stop her writing to Ellen Nussie. Mm -hmm. He will probably, Mrs Gaskell was afraid that he would stop her, Charlotte seeing them because Gaskell's were Unitarian. Um, and of course, she never did see Mrs. Gaskell, but she died. Um, and I just think there are the bits I picked out. I was looking through the letters um, a few days ago, and it just horrifies me. This is this independent 38-year-old, well-known author, and he's coming up to see what she's writing and saying, no, your friend has got to burn them or I will stop you writing to her. Can I... Retort. But I think, it, you know, and myself and Michael were talking earlier about something else, and we, we spoke about revisionism and how yeah, revisionism yeah. and reading something out of context can be, you know, often dangerous. Um, so that, I mean, to, the, the patriarchy at the time was for sure, that was Victorian living, you know, so I don't think we can judge him, you know, in terms of our modern, um, you know, take on on patriarchal um, matters. But but the other thing is to isolate just one letter like that, um, you know. And I've got more. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so I've got a letter, um, <laughs> if I may. So this is the part that I referred to earlier. So this is after the whole event and everything. And I'll just read a, a part from it that she says. She said, Dear Ellen, Arthur complains that you do not distinctly promise to burn my letters as you receive them. He says you must give him a plain pledge to that effect or he will read everything every line I write and elect himself censor of, of our correspondence. He says women are most rash in letter writing. They think only of the trustworthiness of their immediate friend and do not look to contingencies. A letter may fall into any hand. You must give the promise. I believe, at least he says so, with his best regards or else you will get such notes as he writes to Mr. Souden. Plain, brief statements of facts without the adornment of a single flourish, with no comment on the character of or peculiarities of any human being. And if afraid of sensibility or affection steals in, it seems to come on tiptoe, looking ashamed of itself, blushing pea green, as he says, and holding both its shy hands before his face. Write him out his promise on a separate slip of paper in a legible hand and send it in your next. So well, I really ah. think that the tone of that is tongue in cheek. No, you know, I don't I do no. what he wants. So I that don't we can agree get on with because it. bless, bless <laughs> Ellen Nussie, she didn't burn them. She did. No, she didn't, thankfully. Well done for her. Thank you. No, honest, and, and both both really, really good, powerful points. And I do think, and I love how you've both quoted from the letters, and it feels important, perhaps, to allow uh, us now to kind of absorb that and perhaps think on and do our research. I'm going to give Michael a word on Arthur, and then I think <laughs> I knew I would have to referee this bit quite intensely. Oh. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll move on past that and maybe turn to it. But thank you. And I, I think the point about patriarchy, of course, of course, of 
Michael. <laughs> so my question Michael. is, have you about an extra hour to spend? <laughs> <laughs> and there is an old adage, a man should never get between two women. <laughs> Which is my And love. I suppose uh, biographers look at an entire life of a person to be truthful, don't they? And they don't just focus in on a number of letters. And when you think of the joy that he brought into the household in Haworth and how he stayed on and looked after the old man long after Charlotte was in heaven. Like, he was a man. That was great stuff. He was honest. He was caring. The Patrick had really vilified him and called him a serpent and other not very nice names. He still got over that, and he still did what Charlotte would have wanted him to do, look after her aged father. He was a man. He was great. We could do it. We should have done a whole... You see, it's interesting. <laughs> we are going to end up, which we don't accidentally want to do across patriarchy, talking more about Arthur yeah. than, than Charlotte. And that's... that's yeah. I suppose that doesn't yeah. usually happen. Yeah. But there again, I imagine there are panels that get a bit derailed by the excitingness of Branwell. And was he completely dissolute <clears throat> or was there anything good to him? And are we... Do we? Are we then going away from the women? So, uh, taking all points, thank you. That was really interesting. <laughs> but I'm now going to ask... Um, uh, oh, before I actually do open up again to let you ask questions of each other. Um, but you, you've all undertaken, as we've heard, really extensive research, um, but very different kinds of research, I think. Mm. Um, so um, it'd be interesting to hear a little bit about your research process. I'm going to start with you, Michael, actually. Well, can I say it was an absolute joy getting up every morning to read and research about Charlotte Arthur, the honeymoon, the whole Bronte effort. So my wife here, Christine, is in the front row of the audience, but at this moment in time, she has it in her back pocket. It's a kind of sliding thing that eventually forms a whip. You know. <laughs> so about, about five o'clock every morning, I was up like this out of the bed. Six o'clock, I was at the computer, da-da-da-da-da. And it was absolutely wonderful to read such amazing things about each of the people who were involved, but then adding the concretion of Sir John Forbes and all the other people who wrote at the same time as her and trying to come to terms with that. Well, how do you make it logical? How does it fit? How are we going to make that travel from... Haworth through Wales, across and into Ireland, down into the Midlands, to Kilkee, Cork and back. Where does all that go? So you have this kind of juggling going on in your head and little bits of, how does it fit? And then how do you fit a bit of poetry in there? There are lots of bits of poetry if anybody is interested in the romantic poems in there. And uh, it's how to make it fit. So that in itself was a jigsaw and a mind-bending exercise of to get it together. And I started really on this in 2017, Finished it four, year, four years later, as published, and it was an everyday event for me. And what a joy and what a grief when it was over. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know what you mean. Mm. Go on, Monica, yeah, because it feels like... <sighs> well, this was, yeah, uh, seven years. Seven years researching and writing. I started um, writing after about three and a half years because I thought, you know, I thought of mortality... I've got to start writing this. But, you know, at your point, when I was in the last year, I was thinking, oh, God, what am I going to do next? I can't <laughs> leave this. But the, the research was... I just went so many places, and it was so exciting. And one of them uh, was obviously to West Yorkshire. Um, first came to... went to Pudsey, 
where David was, um, who um, Patrick had given him his first job at um, Hartshead, near here. Um, so the first trip was to Pudsey, where he'd been for 40 years. And then I had to come back because I hadn't been to Hartshead. David had started um, as a clergyman there. Um, it's complicated, but Patrick Bronte had wanted to stay uh, as a curate in Dewsbury, and he had the living, but he needed a curate at Hartshead. So, um, so I went to Dewsbury. But before then, I'd contacted the church at Hartshead to say, well, when, it, when is it open? You never know with churches nowadays. And I got this amazing I think, phone call from Reverend Richard Burge, who was then the, the, the priest there. And he said, well, the best time for you to come is in June, when we have this monthly get-together and, you know, family researchers are there and we have coffee, tea and cake. <laughs> and he picked me up at Dewsbury Minster, took me to Hartstead, he said, I've got a surprise for you. I didn't know what it was. And he'd purloined the parish register <laughs> from Wakefield, 1811, 1812, and in it, there was David Jenkins' name, his first job at the age of 23. He was from North Wales. It's where I live. No, he was from Mid Wales. I live in North Wales. And he'd come, you know, all this way, his first job. Um, and it was quite a Welsh community. In, in, and that was, it was so exciting. It was so nice of him. It was, I just felt blessed. Mm. Um, and there were other lovely... Um, moments of excitement. I think anyone who does family research can know that. You can go to the archives, go, and it's just, you don't know if you're going to find anything at all. But um, I think one moment was um, Aberystwyth, near where I live now, in the National Library. There was a scan. Um, I think it was a, I don't think, no, I don't think then there was a scan, but they said there was a will of an Evan Jenkins. Such a common name. So I thought, oh, well, I've got to go and see it. There wasn't a scan of that. And I, um, I thought, well, I wonder if, you know, it's going to have the right names in it. Because I knew his son Evan's name, his other son David's name. And I, I was given this, and it was like texture of a leaf. And it was scratchy and ancient. And it had been dictated to his friend from Lampeter in 1806. And... It, you know, he was a tenant farmer, obviously very poor, and um, he gave David, his eldest son, one pound. But because he'd sent, he'd given him brilliant schooling nearby, and just to see that letter, I thought, this is my three mm -hmm. times great-grandfather. And I looked out of the window where I was sitting in the National Library of Aberystwyth and thought, this is my country now, too. And it's, you know, it's those moments... Yeah, of, of finding something. Oh, beautifully put. Thank you, Monica. And Pauline, in the absence, sadly, of Michael's book and research, <laughs> that would have been so handy. What was your thought? Yeah, so um, it was, you know, the, the, the travelogues of the time, certainly. You know, Thackeray um, had one, Fraser's, um, which was written in 1854, which was really helpful because that was the year of the honeymoon. Um, and, but mostly it was Charlotte's letters and Charlotte's works. And, and that's what informed, you know, as a fiction um, writer, I mean, the first thing you want to do is get a handle on your main character, your point of view character. So they, that's what informed, um, because I've, I've written this book from, from Charlotte's point of view. Um, and um, and then travelling to the place, like, I mean, I feel like this book has had a gestation of 40 years um, because <laughs> um, since that first visit to Howarth, I've been back um, 
I think this is our seventh visit and my daughter and husband are here in the audience with her husband and my husband as well. Um, and she will remember, I dragged her across the moors um, <laughs> and in, in the spills of rain. Um, so we've, you know, been to Howith and did that. But the actual writing of the book, I wrote the book during lockdown. Um, and I'd never been to the places in Wales until yesterday on our way here. We went to Clanberris Pass and Bedgillard, but I travelled them on Google. And when we were travelling yesterday, I even said, it's amazing, it's the very same. <laughs> it's just like going down the road on the computer. Um, and it was, so, and, and then there was a window in lockdown um, in the summer of 2020, and we were able then to do the Irish, like Banagher. Um, my other connection with Banagher um, is my mother was born and raised in Banagher until she was 12. So we've always had a family connection because my grandfather was the train driver and that's how they ended up there. Um, so I knew Banagher, um, but then we travelled to Kilkee and we travelled, we did the Gap of Dunlaw on a really hot day. Um, and that was the place where Charlotte almost died. Mm. She was thrown from um, the horse that she was on, or pony um, at the time. So yeah, so we, we, we got to travel um, and, and, you know, why it was important to be in those places like the cliff top in Kilkee is just to feel, you know, hear, hear the, the sounds and, and just feel it so you can incorporate it and bring some of that into the fiction as well. Absolutely. Because for all that Google Earth has changed sure. things and made things possible, as you say, it's something in the feel, isn't it? And then that comes across beautifully too. Thank you all. Um, okay, well, it would be really nice, and we, we do have time, um, just to hear a short extract from, from each of your books and, and get a sense of the very different voices of them and, and also get to, to sit in those those journeys for a while. So perhaps, Pauline, if we oh, could start okay. with you. Okay, um, so what I'm going to read from is the, it's the first proposal, um, and it's where... Um, um, she, yeah, okay, I'll just read it. <laughs> it's, it's The answer is not a yes um, to this one. And again, it's informed by her letters, but it's also informed by what I came to, what I came to understand of Charlotte Bronte. So my version of Charlotte Bronte. It was a Monday, not long before Christmas, and as usual, Mr. Nichols was around for tea. He was not himself, there was an agitation about him, and Charlotte felt that his looks suggested that something was playing on his mind, something that involved her. After tea, she withdrew to the dining room, as was usual, to work some more on the valet proofs. It was Mr. Nicholls' habit to stay conversing with the Reverend Bronte until nine. Charlotte heard the parlour door close, and instead of the front door clashing to a close, the next thing she heard was a tapping. A sixth sense informed her what was to come. Mr. Nichols entered the dining room and stood before her, looking pale and shaking, actually physically trembling. Charlotte, I think you will have noticed that I sometimes have a queer feeling with regards to you, especially when you are near me as now, Mr. Nichols said in a low yet vehement voice. There was something in the intonation that sounded rehearsed and to Charlotte's ear familiar. He did not look himself. Mr. Nichols, I won't pretend that this queer feeling, as you call it, has entirely gone unnoticed, but what of it? Why trouble me with your ailments? What possible cure can I offer for your queer feelings? 
As she spoke, a part of her brain stayed focused on his words. They niggled as if she had heard them before. She could see beads of sweat form on his brow. Oh, how she loathed any dramatic manifestation of emotion. It is as if a string somewhere under my left ribs, tightly and inextricably knotted to a similar string, situated in the correspondent corner of your little frame, he circled his upturned right hand as if the movement magicked the words from thin air. Again the tone sounded rehearsed and the words familiar and as the clock on the stairs struck nine, Charlotte, suddenly realising what she was hearing, rose defiantly, her eyes widened with astonishment. You use my words! The words I gave to Rochester when he declared his love for Jane. You're quoting from Jane Eyre. Mr. Nichols, what is wrong with you? Indeed, what is wrong with me that provokes you to make sport of me in this way? This is a wickedness I would not have thought you capable of. Next you will be asking me to hear the nightingale and then you will be offering your hand, your heart and all your possessions. Charlotte made a sound that could have been a scoff or the nervous laugh of one anticipating an offer of hand and heart and all possessions. Mr. Nichols made as if to move closer to where she stood, but she stopped him with an outstretched arm. Charlotte, I'm a fool, and I know that you deserve a man of intelligence and charm and words, words that were not available to me growing up in the boglands of Ireland. The only part of me that emulates your romantic hero is the deep regard I have for you. Indeed, the... Mr. Nichols looked to the door, took a handkerchief from his coat and wiped his brow. He was clearly in some distress. Charlotte closed her eyes and breathed deeply. Her patience for melodrama was so limited. Mr. Nichols cleared his throat, making a noise that unfortunately sounded rather pathetic. Ever since I first, I first set foot in Howard, ever since we have become acquainted, I have regarded you as, I have admired you and marvelled at how you have held up in the face of great adversities. Your dedication to the Reverend is a model for daughters of clergymen the world over. Your talent, your remarkable talent, displayed in your many volumes have moved me. You know already how much I enjoyed and laughed heartily at your proposal portrayal of us curates in Shirley, you're Mr. Nichols. It is my turn to borrow the words of another, more matter with less art, or I fear I shall never see the back of you this night. <laughs> I believe you to be a very capable woman, Charlotte, but like all of your sex, I believe you to be in need of protection against the vagaries of life, such as a male companion can bring. I believe I could be that fortress, that fortification, that... F oh, please, Mr. Nichols, spare the alliteration. Is this a marriage proposal? Dear Charlotte, with hope and boldness and deep affection that I believe to be the foundations of a great love. Will you, have you asked Papa? <laughs> I have tried, but I, so no, you haven't. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Pauline. Monica. Okay, I think the, my introduction might be slightly longer than the... <laughs> The extract, but so this is the end of um, one chapter. So there are two main chapters on the Brontes in Brussels, Charlotte and Emily. And um, this is at the end of one. And I said also that I had no interest in the Brontes novels until I started researching and then I fell in love with them. So, but one of Charlotte's best friends was Mary Taylor travelled on the continent and wrote letters to Charlotte about the magnificent things she was seeing, cathedrals and stuff. And Charlotte was really fired up to go to Brussels. It had to be Brussels. And Mary's younger sister, Martha, Martha Taylor, was at school there, Chateau de Kokelberg. Bright, dancing, laughing Martha. Um, but the school, the chateau was, um, it wasn't an actual chateau, it was just a posh name for a 
house, three stories, um, with an English headmistress. Um, so Martha was at the school, um, but it was too expensive for the Bronte sisters. They couldn't afford it. Um, so my great-great-grandmother, Eliza Jenkins, found the school for them, the pensionnat, right at the last moment. Charlotte and Emily were going to go to Lille in France, and then Eliza Jenkins found the school, the Hegea school. Um, so in this chapter, I've purged a lot of fabrications um, about my Jenkins family and those related to um, Martha. At that school, um, Martha and Mary went to, uh, was my great, great aunt, 14. It wasn't a finishing school. It was a normal school, but just slightly too expensive. The more fabrications that Martha, Martha died, 24, um, in Brussels, um, which obviously devastated Charlotte. Um, but I, had, I got rid of the fabric. I purged the fabrications. Um, she wasn't, the service, the funeral service wasn't conducted by a Belgian in French. It was conducted 99% by my great-great-grandfather. It's Anglican, she was Anglican. Um, and um, it's just, Charlotte depicted Martha um, as Jesse York in Shirley, another novel we have barely mentioned today. Um, Shirley is um, it's set in the Luddite um, riots here, uh, 1811 to 12. Um, so this is my last paragraph of this chapter. On hearing the news of Aunt Branwell's final illness, Charlotte and Emily hurried, no doubt by train, to Antwerp to catch the boat, though they were not late. They were too late for the funeral. Everything had changed, despite Monsieur Heger's plea for the talented piano-playing Miss Emily to return. She decided to stay in Haworth. Charlotte offered a teaching job by the Hegers in return for more language learning and excited about the intellectual stimulation she was finding from Monsieur Heger, returned on her own at the end of January, 1843. That is for my next chapter. But before I combat, combat more fabrications, I turn to Charlotte's intelligent genius to articulate feeling. She writes of the death of Martha, Jesse York, in Shirley. Charlotte has described the child, Jesse, abusing the established church, Wellington and the Prince Regent, and, cry, and ends, but Jesse, I will write about you no more. And in the astonishing paragraph that follows, Charlotte changes viewpoint and shifts time from young fictional Jesse in 1811 to Charlotte herself writing on an autumn evening wet and wild, perhaps in 1848, just after the death of Brother Branwell. As to her looking back to autumn 1842 and Martha's death, when she made a pilgrimage to a grave new made in a heretic cemetery in Brussels, a cemetery where my family are buried. Mm. Thank you. So, the honeymoon couple are now in Banagher in Midland of Ireland on the majestic River Shannon beside it. 
and their approaching Cuba court, where they were to reside and have a lovely time for about a week. So, a brief coach jaunt ushered the honeymoon party from Banner's Shannon's side to the walled enclosure of Cuba court domain, breached by elating entree through the stone gate piers and open cast iron gates to the graveled avenue beyond. Heart-shaped leaves fluttered on the lime trees close by the driveway to Cuba House, further along. Sunshine blossoms radiant as sequins wept perfumed nectar, bumbled for honey or created favoured tinctures to soothe cough and cold. Charlotte and Arthur alighted at last in beautiful Banagher, the foremost locale in their Irish odyssey. A vacation was in the offing, a charming and delightful prospect. Nearby was Bogland. A splendour of hummocks, dark pools, carpets and lawns of bog mosses, cotton grass, a profusion of wild flowers, heather and bracken, and small stands of birch rolled over the horizon in this hallowed portion of Ireland's central boglands. The yellow star flowers of bog asphodel could light the dark, or die maidens here, moor gold as in Yorkshire, and break the bones of sheep who grazed the succulent perennial. Bog asphodel grows in wet and mountain areas. Sheep pasturing there frequently suffered from foot rot attributed to grazing on the plants. The white variety of Ashvidalis albus may have been the plant of the ancient Ashvidal fields of the Greek afterlife. Soon afterwards, they headed down into Banhar. Outside the gates of Cuba Court, the July-high grass of the verge is hummed with bees and scarlet butterflies. A chaos of hedgerow blossoms turned to Charlotte as if to another son, the Queen of King's County on that day. The couple veered past St. Paul's to the hill and entered the outskirts of the township of Banner. Thank you. You find yourself very in that moment with them, Michael, in that moment. That was really beautiful. Thank you. When you really took us there and it feels like in that, in evoking the... The, the nature, the flowers, the transience, the beauty of that space and that place, you're adding so much that we kind of, even if we can't get there, although I imagine everyone's going, Banaha might be on the agenda for our next holiday. It sounds so amazing. <laughs> um, <laughs> you've evoked it, and, and Pauline, you've so evoked their whole journey too. These books are brilliant companions. And Monica, you've taken us into both the feeling and the truth of some elements of the Brontes world that otherwise would have been absolutely forgotten. And it just feels so important that we have both the, f the, the feeling and the accuracy and the feelings and the facts, and it feels like they weave together as the Brontes did so beautifully. So this has been an absolutely just <laughs> such a rich, full event. Thank you so much to all of you. I'm sure, audience, you might have, have questions. We're going to, because, you know, it was so... Time marches on. All three of our authors will be around to sign their books outside. So please do feel free to um, chat to them. I wouldn't necessarily engage 
Monica on the subject of Arthur necessarily, <laughs> unless you've got a spare hour. But there again, feminist conversation is never a bad thing to have. Um, so can we please... Um, and then, yeah, it's just... What a, oh, this is, you know, a Bronte day. What a, a luxurious, mm. wonderful thing to have. Yeah. And, and we've, we've travelled across so many aspects of the Brontes' lives, but for me, this has been particularly rich. So thank you. Can we show our appreciation for Pauline, Monica and Michael?